When someone chooses to be a part of a faith community, they hope that their experience is one that is filled with love and guidance. But when you pull back the veil and realize so much that you once believed is no longer true, it can be a harrowing feeling. My guest today, Julie Royce, has been a Christian her whole life, and her current work as an investigative journalist has given her the chance to expose wrongdoing in the church while keeping her faith and beliefs intact. You're listening to We Need to Talk. So you got something to say that is on your mind. We need to talk. Julie Royce, thank you so much for being on We Need to Talk. Oh, thank you, Melinda. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I I love the work that you do and how you've really carved out this niche for yourself in in Christian investigative journalism because it isn't something that you see too much of, at least in the way that you present information. And I'm really, really grateful for that because I, I feel like in general, the goal of a lot of Christian spaces is to present everything that's good, nothing's ever broken, nothing needs to be fixed. And um, as someone who's been a Christian their, their whole life, and I've been you know in and out of churches my whole life, I really do appreciate your approach to truth, specifically when it does come to evangelical spaces. But I really want to know before you even got into this work, what was your relationship with Christianity and the church like just growing up and throughout your life? Yeah. So my family was one of those, you probably heard the joke, like if the doors were open at church, we were there. Yeah. that <laughs> Seven days a week probably. Yep. <laughs> You're right. I mean, that was my family. I was actually born in Zimbabwe. My parents. Oh, wow. Yeah. They were uh, missionaries in Southern Rhodesia at the time. Um, dates me a little bit. Um, but yeah, they were medical missionaries. I grew up in a very devout family and I I was very blessed. I mean, my parents walked out their faith in front of us. They lived with integrity. Um, I can remember being six years old, and I know a lot of people have different views of, you know, can can you really make a decision to follow Christ at like age six? But I actually remember they took us to, I don't know if you were ever a part of these revival meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. So my parents took me to a revival meeting. And I remember the the pastor saying, if you want to receive Jesus, come forward. Well, I've been hearing about Jesus my whole life. And I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do that. And um, so my dad took me forward. I remember praying with the elder or whatever. And I do remember, Melinda, I know, again, a lot of people wonder about these things, but I remember there being like a euphoric kind of feeling when I came mm-hmm. to Christ as, as a little kid. And so, you know, over the years, I've, like most kids, wondered if that was real, um, struggled a little bit, like, how can we know that that Christianity is true? Because that was really important to me. And I remember as a junior hire, my parents giving me this book by Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, and I remember reading it. And and those those answers satisfied me at the time. Mm. Um, and then I went to college struggled a bit with depression, um, had a kind of tougher time at Wheaton College, which is kind of like the evangelical flagship school. Um, I kind of expected everybody there to be on fire Christians, and I got there, and they weren't. And mm. I had never been in an environment where the peer pressure was to pretend that you were a Christian. <laughs> and that was really difficult for me and my faith. It was very confusing um, for me to, f- to figure that out. Um, but coming out of that, 
Uh, I have an experience. I don't talk about it all that often, but I, I did struggle with depression for four years. And I have to be careful even saying this story, but um, because I know some people struggle with depression their whole life and there's nothing wrong yeah. with you if you do. I mean, that's yeah. just, it, it happens. But for me, I think a lot of it was tied to my spiritual confusion. And I can remember the night I was actually at, and this is funny now, if you know anything about Willow Creek Community Church and Bill Hybels, and there's been a horrible scandal, but that's where I was when I remember feeling very far from God, struggling with depression, and I can remember the night that the Holy Spirit, and now I have language for it, I didn't then, but the Holy Spirit just fell on me, and, and I knew this closeness uh, with, with Jesus, and I cried and cried and cried, which you don't really do at Willow Creek, it's, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's maybe a charismatic church you would, but not there, but I just did because I knew that presence of God, and so my walk with the Lord is very personal to me. It's been something that's sustained me. And despite everything I've seen, um, and, I, and I do think God kind of uniquely positioned me for what I'm doing, because yeah. if I didn't have the background I had with the Lord, and I hadn't seen so much good as a kid, I think it'd be very hard for me to stay in the faith. But I have. And so I know there's a real, I know there's a counterfeit. And my prayer is that through my work, you know, all I can do is report. It's up to the rest of the church. It's up to God mostly, you know, to do the work that he's going to do with that truth. Um, but that's what I want to be a part of, reform. I love that because more often than not, I feel that when people are aware, become aware of uh, corruption and deceit within the church, that makes them turn away. But it seems like it's actually brought you closer. And I love that because that's kind of how I feel just in my experiences of being at churches, seeing a lot of wrongdoing, seeing a lot of discrimination. If I didn't have my own very, very personal relationship with God, I absolutely would have walked away from this faith a long time ago. And I don't fault people who actually do take that choice because I fully understand and have empathy for them. But it does take a really strong faith to stay where you are to try to fix it rather than walk away from it. So I really love that about you. Yeah, well, and and you as well. I mean, it's it's a refining process. Yeah. I yeah. think. And you find out whether your belief is in the church, is it in the structures of men, is it in the celebrity preachers, is it in all these people other than Jesus yeah. where we yeah. can posit our faith. And I think it has to be in Jesus in this day and age. If it's not in Jesus, if it's in anything around him, that's going to be stripped away because there's just an awful lot of structures, false structures that have been built up around the church that pretend to be the church mm -hmm. that just aren't. Yeah. When did you personally start to see some of the corruption and the deceit within church spaces? And that's where you started to kind of put your energy into exposing it to try to have reform and change. Yes. So I was a, a radio host for Moody Radio Network for um, about seven years. I was actually with Moody Radio for about 10 years. In and Chicago, right? In Chicago, yeah, I was I, at... Yeah, I lived in Lakeview. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> For a while, yeah, so I know. <laughs> and so you probably know the Moody Bible Institute. I mean, mm -hmm. it's huge. It's And it's one of the few evangelical organizations that stayed in downtown Chicago and had a presence in Chicago and was very uh, diverse. And, mm. I, you know, it was one of the things I really loved about Moody is you, you saw people coming together, you know, theologically from the same background, but, you know, ethnically... Um, even, you know, countries, you saw the world 
coming there. And that was a, a wonderful place to be. Mm. But I will say what I expected to find at Moody and what I found were two different things. Mm. And that's when I was introduced to what I would call the evangelical industrial complex or the evangelical celebrity machine. And I think that's a, a term that was coined by Sky Jathani, who worked for Christianity Today for a while. He's an author mm -hmm. and a speaker. But it's true that there's all of these. I began to see that you have all of these structures. You have institutions like the Moody Bible Institute. You have, you know, radio. Obviously, that's that's a part of it. But the publishing companies depend on the radio for, you know, their books to get promoted, for their authors to get promoted. The celebrity preachers depend on, you know, the publishing houses depend on the mega churches for the conferences. For the, I mean, it is huge, yeah. huge money making business. Now, if this you know, network of relationships and ministries and everything else, if they work together to bring accountability and to make sure we're all pulling for something good, then, you know, great. But that's not what I saw. What mm. I saw was that this, is that all of them protected each other. They had each other's back. And that's perverse when we say, hey, you can do wrong, but I've got your back. There, there's a actually a talk by Dave Ramsey, um, you know, kind of the financial guru, where he yeah. gives this whole talk on "I got your back." It's a frightening message. In fact, I wrote mm -hmm. about it, uh, you know, on my website about no, we don't got each other's back, right? I mean, if you do right, I'll be with you. You do wrong, I'm going to care enough as your brother or sister in Christ to call you out. Right. So it became very clear to me that there was something wrong with that whole system, but. A lot of people say, well, you know, when did you start doing this or when did you um, sign up to do this? And I'm like, I didn't sign up. I got drafted. And that's <laughs> the truth. Uh, 2017, I had just published my first book. I was getting all those speaking engagements like you're supposed to do, you know, speaking at the big women's conference. Right. Uh, ironically, I was scheduled to speak at Harvest Bible Chapel, which I later exposed. And um, James McDonald, who was the pastor there, lost his job. Um, but... At that point, everything was going perfect with, with me. I was supposed to even emcee the upcoming Founders, uh, Founders Week, which at Moody is this huge conference where everybody comes in. And at that same time, people were coming to me within the organization saying, the administration is bullying us. If we complain about mission drift, they attack us. I found out that the president of the organization of the Moody Bible Institute was taking had taken a half a million dollar loan to buy a million dollar condo that he wasn't paying back. It was interest only. I found out mm. that the chairman of the Moody Bible Institute, Jerry Jenkins, um, that he had a, a luxury suite that he was maintaining, that they had maintained for him at Moody Bible Institute. That's self-dealing. The chairman of the board can't get any perks. I mean, um, and then it actually just a couple years prior to that, I'd found out that James McDonald who was, again, a radio preacher at Harvest Bible Chapel, um, he had been caught gambling in Vegas. And mm. I was like, what's going on with that? And I remember the time, so so confused by why he didn't get pulled off Moody Bible Institute, why he didn't get off Moody Radio Network. Then I found out who he was gambling with. He was gambling with Jerry Jenkins, the head <laughs> of the, the Board of Trustees. So, yeah. I mean, this is what I saw, started to see. And my stomach just started to turn. And I'll never forget the day that I, I pushed publish on my first piece where I was like, I'm going to blow up my career today. <laughs> um, and I honestly, Melinda, I didn't care. Yeah. 
I didn't care. I was so disgusted by it all. I'm like, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't care if I burn my bridges in evangelicalism. This is just wrong. It's wrong. And someday I'm going to stand before God and have to give an account. And I'm, I'm not going to say I turned the, I looked the other way or I didn't warn people about what was going on. So that's what I did. I thought I was going to, after I blew the whistle on Moody, I was, I was going to have more time with my kids and my grandkids, right? That was my plan. Um, but then more and more and more people just came to us, came to me and just said, please, will you report on this story? This is happening. That is happening. Mm. And I just, I felt like it was my duty. And so yeah. that's what I've been doing ever since. Good for you. You know, I want to follow up on on something that you said specifically about Dave Ramsey's speech where he talks about, I got your back. And that tends to be a common theme with a lot of these situations, right? But I do, you, and I'm curious if you think this, but I've always felt that there is um, the abuse of the notion of forgiveness within the church and as a way to justify wrongdoing. And I'm curious if in the work that you've done, you've noticed that as a common denominator and thread through all of these mega churches specifically. Oh, absolutely. And and people confuse forgiveness with restoration to a position. Hmm. So if you're a pastor, you look in scripture, there's very clear, very, very clear um, specifications on the qualifications of, of an elder. You have to be, you know, it, it mentions many things, truthfulness, not greedy, above reproach, <laughs> uh, husband and one wife, you can't be involved in sexual immorality. I mean, all these things. And so if there are qualifications, that also means there are ways to be disqualified, right? Right. But you see these pastors, and they're good. I mean, they're good at spiritual manipulation. So they'll get caught, and then they'll be like, David got caught. King David got caught with Bathsheba, and God restored him, and he stayed king. So see, God forgives, praise the Lord. And you're like, well, one, David and Bathsheba had a firstborn son, and they were punished by God. That son died. Yeah. That was the punishment for his yeah. sin. God doesn't overlook sin. And it's clear that there are disqualifications. And so can you be forgiven? Absolutely. If you're truly repentant, you can be forgiven. You know what one of the, the signs of your repentance is? I'm disqualified. I'm stepping down. I'm going to hmm. move into the, you know, a different line of work right now. To me, that's one of the one of the qualifications of of you know just even testing whether repentance is real. But you can be to re- restored to the church. There are some things you can do, like one of the stories I just published on John MacArthur, where he found out somebody abused his kids. Later, he was convicted of being a child molester, and they're supporting his ministry in prison. I'm like, no, yeah. you know, there's certain things you can do. You are no longer a minister of the gospel. You lost that. That's not a birthright of yours. It's right. a privilege. And you can lose the trust. And, you know, honestly, for some people, some of the things you do, there's not enough time in your life to regain that trust. So mm-hmm. you just step down. Can I forgive you? Absolutely. Will I trust you? Mm, maybe not. Right. And it's interesting because despite there being so many stories and similar stories with a lot of these churches, um, there seems to still be just this abundance of support for those people. And that's fine. And I think that you can, like you said, you find a way to forgive them. Eventually they can earn their trust back, but they still allow them to be in leadership positions in the church. Why do you think there is so much denial within church culture, but specifically the evangelical space? Because that's where I see it the most. Uh, it's idolatry. Hmm. It's it's just idolatry. We And to, to go back to, we've been talking about Old Testament, you know, the kings, but Israel wanted a king, right? God said, I'm going to be your king. They're like, no, we want a king. 
And there's something about, and I've talked about, you know, talked to a lot of experts about this. There's something about the, the celebrity pastor, which is a new phenomenon. And quite frankly, it's just gross. Yes. I yes. mean, <laughs> you know, if you want to get rich, get rich, but don't do it on the gospel. You want to get fame? Fine. Get famous. Don't do it on the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a pastor. That means you are the chief servant of the people. Mm-hmm. That's what Jesus mm-hmm. was. He came to serve. He washed people's feet, right? But there's something about us in our flesh that we want to be close to that fame. We want to be close to that celebrity. We want, it's like, you know, it's like when your sports team wins and your identity's wrapped up in that sports team. Whoa, yeah. you know, that's a little sick too. But anyway, we won't get into that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's like, it's like we in our own flesh want to feel like we're somebody. And for some reason, being close to God and feeling his smile and knowing that someday we'll be, you know, rewarded for that. That's not enough for us. We we want it now. We want that that importance. And there is a lot of importance tied to uh, someone. I mean, he can help you. If you're in ministry, that celebrity preacher can help you with your career, and he can also destroy it. And yeah. so people know that. Yeah. And so, again, you've got this complex. You have this entire money-making machine that is built up around somebody making it. So they don't want the celebrity pastor to fall. They don't want that organization uh, that actually they have a very symbiotic relationship with to fail. And so we've got an idolatrous system right now. Um, but I think the other thing is, too, that we love the show. We absolutely love the show. And I remember there's a, a megachurch ba- pastor by the name of Stephen Furtick. Um, some people may know him, of your listeners, some may not, but he's pretty big. He's out there in the Carolinas, and he's got several several uh, megachurches and, you know, campuses, and he's got million, multi-million dollar home, all these things. And I remember just thinking, I, I heard him preach, and I'm like, he's kind of a goofball. Like, why does everybody <laughs> like him? I was like, he does absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> and then I watched his service, and I heard Elevation Worship, which that's their, their worship yes. team now has their yep, whole yep. entire, you know, worship brand and everything yep. else. And I'm like, oh, dang. This is like an amazing concert every week. And it's hard for me not to get wrapped up in it. You know, I mean, I love what they're singing about. I love Jesus, but I know what's behind the scenes. And so I can't even stomach that. Right. But, but yeah, we love the show. And some people, even after finding out, they're just like, la, 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 la. Like they don't want to hear. They really don't want to hear. They want to go to the show, get their feel good, you know, and that's what we've reduced Christianity to, you know, kind of your feel good on Sunday and you go. And, and yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. It, I, I absolutely agree. And just talking about the show, cause I was a worship leader for almost six years yeah. and, um, I was too, actually. Were you really? Yeah. Not a very good one, but I was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my, my whole background is music and, be, and being a singer and, you know, that was my way to give back a gift that I felt like I was blessed with. And the show really is a part of it. And I mean, even just, you know, having watching the Hillsong documentary when they talked about how they specifically crafted songs um, from a songwriting perspective, it makes complete sense. You know, just the chord progressions, they modulate at the right spot. The lights at the church go at the, it's all crafted for you to feel like you're having this spiritual experience, but you don't really know if you actually are. It's very manipulative, I've, I've come to, to, to realize. It reminds me of the verse in, in the Old Testament where uh, God says, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts mm. are far from me. Mm. That's yeah. that's our era. That is. That's it. 
That's it. Absolutely. You know, with all of the work that you've done, though, and you've had a lot of realization, has anybody come to you and said that they've had epiphanies and realizations from the work that you've done? Because I can imagine that you're hoping that the way that you present the truth will turn a light bulb on for some people, but I'm sure you get a lot of flack as well. But have you had positive responses? Yeah, well, I do get hate mail, that's for sure. Um, but, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. But I'm Christians, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, supposedly. Although some of the things they say, you're like, hmm, you know. Right, right. Work out that salvation with fear and trembling, man. That's like, that's kind of brutal. Um, but I remember my journalism prof uh, back in college, he said, Julie, if you're not getting any hate mail, then you're probably just not saying anything. Mm. So, you know, it comes with the territory. It does. But, you know, I do get um, a remarkable amount of people reaching out to me. I remember uh, after publishing on Ravi Zacharias, who again, you know, had one of the, just a humongous uh, apologetics ministry. And it turns out that he was a horrible sexual predator. And mm. I published, I published one of the first, for, for journalists, one of the first journalist stories. There were some bloggers who have been blogging about this for a long time, but um, I published one of the first journalistic accounts of how he had preyed uh, on a woman, a Canadian woman for years, and just a horrible, horrible story, how it devastated her life. Mm. And I remember there was this person on Facebook that just, I mean, there are a lot of people on Facebook that just, just brutal, like just coming after me, like, how dare you? You're destroying the church. You're an awful human being. You know, you just hate Robbie. You just hate Jesus. You know, I mean, I heard those things all the time. Of course. And, and then Christianity Today published a few weeks after I did about how uh, there were allegations from all these women that worked at massage parlors that he co-owned, like who even knew? He had co-owned these spa- massage parlors. And then World Magazine came out with uh, a report backing up both my, uh, the report I had done, the one Christianity Today had done. And then uh, Robbie Zacharias and National Ministries did an entire independent report and they published that. And and there were there were legitimate verified stories of women who were even raped by him, or at least say they were raped by him. So, it, and, and there's a pattern, I and mean, there are many, many multiple victims. And so it, it was one of those things we didn't want to know, but we had to face. And I remember this person who was so brutal to me on Facebook coming back and being like, I owe you an apology. Hmm. I had no idea. And so that's, you know, it's just one person, but I've had, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens from my, my stories on Harvest Bible Chapel, uh, my stories on the Associated Related Churches, the largest church planning organization in North America who's, who has a formula, it's like a McDonald's formula for planning churches, and they have all these pastors now accused of sexual uh, misconduct. It's, it's gross, uh, mm-hmm. some of the things that are happening. But I have a lot of people coming to me saying, one, thank you for opening my eyes. Now I know what to look for in a church. Mm -hmm. I've changed what I'm looking for in a church. They know how to hold people accountable, the kind of transparency they need to see. And I would say lately, the people I'm hearing so much for are abuse victims. Spiritual abuse in the church, sexual abuse in the church, People who get gaslit when they when they come forward and they say something happened to me, and they have these leaders then turn it around and make them into yeah. the bad guy, and yeah. and make them question themselves, you know. And they write me and they're like, I know, I know I'm not crazy now, you know. Thank you. 
Um, we, we had a conference, a uh, Restore conference in 2019. It was our first one. And it was right on the heels of, of Willow Creek imploding in the Chicago area and, and uh, Harvest Bible Chapel. And we had a lot of these, you know, refugees, um, you know, for lack of a better word, who yeah. came. <laughs> And I remember this one woman coming up to me and she said, I came into this conference, a dry, hard sponge. And she's like, and she just has tears rolling down her Mm. eyes. And she's like, now I just feel like a sponge that's just oozing. And so I think to be with other people, to hear from other people, to hear reports showing that your experience isn't isolated, to have, you know, experts who can help you. Um, We've published a lot in the podcasts I've done around the stories I've done about just the language of abuse because a lot of people get hoodwinked by because it's kind of slick how these wolves operate. Um, But to have some of that, have their eyes open to it and have it affirmed. And then if you are one of the people that, you know, actually is in a story where you've been accused of lying all these years, and finally people can see the evidence and go, oh, my word, you were telling the truth, and to <laughs> see a semblance of justice. Um, we often don't see it the side of heaven, but I tell you, yeah. when you do, it is really, really sweet. Yeah. I think just in, in you sharing right now, one of the most heartbreaking things for me is knowing how much power a pastor can have in these situations when people come forward, because that's who you go to, right? When you're at a church, if you make a connection, your pastor is supposed to be the person that you can seek counsel with, that you can trust to spiritually guide you. And in in some of the stories, you know, that I've read that that you've published and the investigations that you've done, a lot of it is sexual abuse, misogyny, abuse towards women. And a lot of those women have been shunned by their church communities at the power of the pastor. And that that breaks my heart so much. It just breaks my heart. I don't know any other way to to describe it. And do you feel that that will ever change? Yes and no. Uh, I recently did a podcast with Sarah McDougall, who mm. uh, is very much a supporter of, yeah. of survivors, just a wonderful human being. Um, but she's been through it. She's an abuse survivor herself. And, and she said, and, and I would 100% agree that that we're seeing a moment you know we had a me too movement in the general culture but we're seeing the church too movement within the church of people are coming forward who never thought they would believe be believed and they're being believed and their stories Mm. are being told and finally the truth is coming to light and i i do think there's a reckoning happening right now and there is going to be a rising up and you know i i thought at first when i started doing this it'll be like one or two stories and now I've realized, oh, my word, it's dozens and dozens and dozens. Yeah. And the, the, the house cleaning is going to take a lot longer than I think anybody anticipated. I don't think it's going to be a few years. I think it might be a few decades or at least a couple. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's going to be brutal and it's going to be hard. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, God shipping Israel or Judah off to, to Babylon. It's painful. Yeah. But he cares more about his name and his reputation than he does about ours. And so he's not going to allow this to just go unchecked. But yes, I do think there is a moment within the church, I think misogyny is being addressed. I think women are being believed. And that's wonderful. There are still patriarchal pockets that are just, you know, they do not, you know, they'll say they value women, but they don't. And uh, that will continue for a long time. And I think we will have this. When I say yes and no, there's also, I mean, go back to Genesis 3. This is part of the curse, right? <laughs> right? That our desire will be for our husbands and he will rule over us, right? I mean, in the curse, 
that's how it works. Hopefully it doesn't, you know, in homes that have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that is a part of the curse. And we're going to have that with us. Uh, we're going to have men dominating women, men taking advantage of women, men using women, ruling over women. We're going to have that until we're free from the curse, which isn't going to happen, yeah. you know, uh, till, till Jesus comes back. I mean, that's, right. that's right. what I think. So, yeah. yeah. Um, it's here, but it's also changing. It is getting better, and and I do think um, we don't labor in vain. Yeah, yeah, we don't. It's baby steps. It's baby steps for sure. Absolutely. But at least there's steps moving forward, right? Amen. Yeah. Um, we talked, you know, about misogyny and abuse of women. But have you been successful in exposing any white supremacist ideology within the church as well, and shining a light on racism? Because obviously, for me, being a black female, having grown up in churches, and I went to Azusa Pacific University, I was a worship leader at a at an, a mega church in New York as well. So I feel like I got a lot of it. <laughs> The misogyny and the racism, right? So in your experience, because I know I've read a lot of, uh, about the sexual abuse and the misogyny, but what has your experience been in investigating white supremacy and racism? I will say at first, and this is my own ignorance, I thought when I was working on, you know, abuse and corruption with the church that it didn't necessarily have any racial component to it. Mm. Um, and I mean, I... I, I I'll just say, I, w I was ignorant at first. I didn't really see it. And it wasn't until uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, um, I began reporting on Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is a church where John Piper was. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he pastored for over 30-some years now. He's retired. Um, but this huge mega church, Desiring God Ministries, comes out of it. They have Bethlehem Baptist uh, College and Seminary, um, huge in evangelicalism. And here their three top, or their top pastor resigns, who was the sort of heir apparent <laughs> to John Piper, Jason Meyer retired, and then two other pastors retired, and they talked about there being spiritual abuse. And, and as I started looking into it, I found out, and there are so many different streams in this. I mean, there were, this was one of the most complex stories I've ever worked on mm. because there was a racist racism component. There was a spiritual abuse component. There was an ideological component. There was, I mean, just a, there was a celebrity pastor component, all these yeah. things. But on the racism component, uh, I discovered that a number of uh, people of color um, just felt like, one, they were, they were underrepresented at the church. And uh, Kyle Howard, who's a racial trauma um, counselor, he, he came in and uh, at, at the church's invite, but really Jason Meyer's invite, it sounded like a couple of the three pastors who ended up leaving. One of them was a person of color. Um, they invited him to come in. He didn't realize what he was stepping into exactly. But anyway, he met with a lot of these, these people of color and they were able to share their experiences. And they, you know, they weren't well represented on the elder board, even though like their downtown campus is in a really diverse area. And yet they were, you know, mostly a white church. Yeah, and so they're like, yeah. why is this going on? And so, with the blessing of the elders, they formed this committee to try and figure that out. And, and talking to some of the people that served on the committee, they said it was one of the most beautiful experiences of their life. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, people from all different backgrounds coming together with this real spirit of the Lord to try and figure out how can we love each other better? How can we as a church, um, you know, reach out and, and lift up our, you know, brothers and sisters of color? And 
Well, it turns out as they're doing this, there's rumblings, you know, according to a number of people I spoke with, from the elders themselves labeling them as, mm. as woke, which my understanding, if you're woke, means that you understand the history of the African-American people, of, you know, right. being in slavery for so many years. And, you know, right. I would hope in that sense that we're all woke and we understand the oppression that, you know, an entire people group has been subjected to in the United States. Um, but now it's become a pejorative term within yeah. especially white evangelicalism, and it's laden with racism. And and we talk about it like, oh, we're just against Marxism or we're just against, you know, um, uh, the latest, you know, critical race theory. The people I talked to, they didn't even know what critical race theory was, you know? Course, I mean, they, they, they had no idea. They're like, what's that? I mean, but they're CRT proponents now. They're woke. They're all these, you know, and I've got accused of being those things for like, what? I mean, like, what? I mean, I it's, and what I've realized is that these terms are used against people of color whenever they speak up about injustice within the church, about injustice in society. What happens in the white evangelical church is we slap this label on them, guilt by association, um, and then we we attribute to them views that they often don't even have, uh, motives that they don't have, and it becomes this absolutely toxic, toxic mix where, you know... (laughs) You can have your conservative convictions, or you can have your progressive convictions. I mean, we right. should be able to live and coexist together with whatever. But it's like, if if you don't if you don't toe the line, and speak a certain way and do a certain thing, you're going to get labeled as this and punished. Yeah. And it is it is cloaked racism. And I think there's a lot of my white evangelical brothers and sisters who are caught up in it and don't even realize it. Yeah. Like they really don't realize what's being done, what's happening at the top. The kind, I mean, the people at the top know exactly what they're doing. They know mm-hmm. exactly how they're manipulating things. But the unbel- below, the masses are just getting riled up in this politics of panic, and and they don't realize how this is keeping the white male leaders in power. And it's disenfranchising an entire group of people. So that was just, again, that was like a huge eye-opening experience for me and one where I just, I felt like I had to even repent of, you know, being a part as a, as a Christian conservative of, you know, probably now, I mean, ever since Trump, I haven't identified as, I'm even afraid to say I'm a conservative. I mean, I am conservative in my convictions, but not when, when if that's what conservatism is, that's not me. Right. And so, uh, you right. know, I began speaking out about Trump, uh, you know, back before he was elected. And um, I was shocked that my community didn't believe what I thought we believed mm. and didn't have mm. the values that I thought we had. And so it's it's been that part's been a, a very, very painful journey. And I've lost friends over it. I've lost supporters yeah. over it. But yeah. to me, um, that's just evil. It's wickedness, and I can't speak out about all these other things and not start speaking out about that. And so um, that's something that I hope to do more of. I I know I just did a podcast not long ago with Kyle Howard, which was wonderful, and he was so vulnerable and so sweet, and um, I just love him. He's a dear brother. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that needs to be spoken about more, and it needs to be spoken about within the white evangelical space. 
Absolutely. And I'm, I'm just so appreciative of, of your honesty of where you were at and where you are now, because that takes a lot of growth as well. And that takes a lot of trust and faith, you know, to be able to say I was wrong in this, I was ignorant to this, but now I know because I'm, and I say this all the time on my podcast, once you know better, especially if you identify as a Christian, you have to do better. You have to do better. We have to once we know, right? And I think the problem with a lot of um, the people that are looking at these white male leaders is that's just who they trust. So whatever they say, they're just going to believe it because you're told that your pastor's not going to lie to you. Your pastor's not going to lead you astray. Your your pastor's supposed to be helping you with your, your walk with Jesus and your walk with the Lord. So I do feel for those people because their bubble is small to an extent and who they put their trust in. Sometimes it's just, it's not the right person, unfortunately, but I love where you are in your journey and what you're doing. So I'm wondering, what are you hoping that your work will accomplish? And what do you think the future of the church is? Well, I hope and I pray for revival. Mm. I do. And to me, it's our only hope as a church in America. It, yeah. it, is, it is so corrupt right now and it's corrupt to the core and if you don't think it's corrupt then you're really just not paying attention I hate to say that but you're just yeah. not and you may have a wonderful church um, but the larger soup that you swim in with evangelicalism is really 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 sick um, and so the only thing that I see our only hope is for us to um, to be humiliated before God <laughs> and to fall on our face and say I am so, so sorry that we have pretended to represent you and have done it so unbelievably mm. poorly, you know? And I do believe that if we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and forsake our idols, that he absolutely will change our hearts and will change the course and the direction of, of where we're going right now. Um, but we are a stiff-necked people. I mean, so yeah. stiff-necked. It is yep. shocking to me. I mean, I recently was in a meeting with, with a pastor, and, uh, and I had brought up an issue within the church where some people who had blown the whistle had been basically told, you can't take communion here unless you apologize and take down your blog. I know, right? Wow. It was absolutely shocking. And, and I was like, this is not okay, what you did to them. Not okay. And no punishment for the people that they blew the whistle on, I'm assuming. Well, someday I'll tell the full story, but I okay. haven't yet. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> um, but I'll just say, I, I'm in this meeting, and since the time that this has happened, a lot of other stuff has come out with that particular church. And they were telling me how they've been through all this abuse training and they're like really informed now and blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> and then I was asked, you know, is there anything that you're, you know, that you feel is unresolved? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. Back, you know, back to that thing that happened. They, um, they did finally apologize, but I said, before you apologized to them, those bloggers, um, you called me a meddler for what I was doing. I was meddling. Mm. I'm like, that's not Okay. And then the pastor looked at me and he's like, well, you did meddle. And I'm like, excuse me, that's meddling? Yeah, you took it way too far and that was not your business and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, at what point should we stop sticking up for 
the oppressed. I mean, where is that in scripture? You know, mm. I mean, it was just shocking to me. Here they've been through all this sensitivity training, you know, and and they they still don't get it. They don't yeah. get it. If yeah. you're wrong, you're wrong. And if somebody pushes you to repent to the point that you repent, you're still wrong. And and this is again, it's just the the amount, I, I, I the hard heartedness, yeah, the the arrogance. I mean, all of these things are just, uh, you know, it just makes me grieve. And so I, I don't know, Melinda, I don't know. I mean, what, yeah. what, will, what will this turn, what will turn out? How will that go? That's not up to me. It really isn't. And um, I do believe my job is really clear to me. Yeah. My job is clear. I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm a truth teller. I have to tell the truth, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. That's my job. So I'm going to keep telling the truth. And, and it's funny, when I, when I first blew the whistle on Moody, I remember I had a, a brother pray with me at one point, and he said, Lord, give her a holy detachment from the consequences. Mm. And that's what I've tried to do. I'm just trying to put my head down, do my job, and please the one person that I'm trying to serve. Yeah. And if at the end of my life he says, "Well done, good and faithful servant," then then I've done something, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not people respond to that, that's not that's not on me. That is my right. prayer, and and that is my hope. But all we can do is be faithful, and so that's what I'm trying to do. But I pray the American Church wakes up. Yes. I do. Yes. I do. Well, I think it's very apparent that you truly are doing God's work and I value what you do and it takes a lot of courage to do what you do and a lot of stamina because I'm sure it's exhausting <laughs> doing all of these investigations. But I'm I'm grateful that you sat down and chatted with me today. Can you let everybody know where they can follow you and keep up with the work that you are doing? Sure. You can go to Julie Roy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and that's where you can read our articles, podcasts, everything. Um, so that's the best way. You can also find me on Twitter, at Reach Julie Roy's. Same on Facebook, facebook.com slash Reach Julie Roy's. Um, but yeah, would love to have you uh, be a part of what we're doing and get behind it. And Melinda, thank you uh, so much for your work and for uh, speaking the truth and being courageous yourself and being willing to be a witness. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Julie. And to the listeners, thank you so much for your weekly support of We Need to Talk. A thank you to Stephen James, our theme song writer and producer. Please remember to subscribe and always remember, everything begins with a conversation. We need to talk.